the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. So glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing and engineering today's program. Well, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Eric Metaxas uh, coming up later this hour. His latest book, Is Atheism Dead? Well, you could answer that yes or no, but he's taken hundreds of pages to answer that question skillfully, and I think you'll find some humor in it as well, making the point that conservatives and those who are Bible believers uh, have plenty of evidence um, to suggest that God does, in fact, exist. Well, we'll talk with Eric Metaxas about that later this hour. And then at 5 o'clock, we're going to talk with Tim Mahoney. He is an award-winning director. He's the founder of Thinking Man Films and Media. And we're going to talk about the seven churches of Revelations, times of fire. I should say Revelation, times of fire. There's a worldwide virtual cinema event that begins today and runs through the end of November. We want to make sure you know all about it. I had the opportunity to see the film. It's the first in, of three installments. Very, very well done. It was intriguing and a little frustrating because it only covered four of the locations in uh, in the seven churches um, of Revelation. But the subsequent editions will be out at some point in the not-too-distant future as well. So Tim Mahoney will join us to talk about that as well. Well, Brian Laundrie's notebook was found near his remains, and it may be salvageable, according to police. It may yield some answers to what ultimately happened. His notebook, which was recovered at the Creek Environmental Park on the 20th of this uh, this month, may be salvageable. And the FBI confirmed that a notebook, along with a backpack and dry bag containing other items that belonged to laundry, turned up at the Northport, uh, Florida Park in an area that had previously been underwater, not far from where the authorities found his partial remains that same day. It appears it may be salvageable. That really is a question for FBI, though. That's what the Northport Police Department Public Information Officer Josh Taylor says. Uh, Digital um, recovery efforts are underway. When asked about the condition of the notebook and whether it had any legible writing inside, the FBI said it has no information to share at this time, but the agency will continue to post updates to Twitter when they become available. Well, the Laundry family attorney He said he doesn't know what's inside the notebook, nor whether the notebook was inside the dry bag when Chris and Roberta Laundrie discovered it. The deceased 23-year-old frequently shared photos of his artwork, mostly done on paper, to his Instagram page. It's not clear whether the notebook recovered from the park contains any artwork or writing. And again, the cause of death is not yet known either. In other developments, three Florida teens planned brutal murders at a high school, um, one a student was killed with a knife and or at least they planned to kill seniors with knives and swords, according to police. Well, the Rust movie um, head electrician says that he was holding uh, the woman who lost her life uh, in his arms as she was dying. Serge 
Svatny, he said the head electrician, gaffer of the movie Rust, penned an emotional post on social media about the death of the cinematographer after a prop gun shooting on set. Well, the Facebook Sunday on his page, he blamed Hutchins' death on the person who was supposed to check the weapon on the site, uh, but did not do this. The person who had to announce that the loaded gun was on the site did not do this. The person who should have checked this weapon before bringing it to the set did not do it. He claimed she died because of both negligence and unprofessionalism. That individual, by the way, has been fired. To save a dime, sometimes you hire people who are not fully qualified for the complicated and dangerous job, and you risk the lives of other people who are close and your lives as well. I understand that you always fight for the budget, but you cannot allow this to happen. It is true that the profession uh, professionals can cost a little more and sometimes can be a little bit more demanding, but it's worth it. No saved penny is worth the life of the person. Uh, In his post, uh, he confirmed he was standing next to Hutchins when she was shot and held her as she died on the New Mexico set. Alec Baldwin, meanwhile, was handed a prop gun on the Rust set by a crew member who was previously fired after a 2019 mishap. President Biden uh, coughed into his hands and proceeded to shake hands with the public while maskless. And of course, that's a big deal today. President Biden coughed um, on Monday following a speech in New Jersey and proceeded to use it to shake the hands of members of the public, all while not wearing a mask. The incident comes less than a week after the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas tested positive for covid just um, uh, 19 days following an event with the president. Last Tuesday, a fully vaccinated Mayorkas tested positive as part of a routine pre-travel Uh, Check Three days earlier, he had attended the 40th annual National Peace Officers Memorial Service at the U.S. Capitol alongside the president, where they were photographed just feet apart without masks. Secretary Mayorkas is experiencing only mild congestion. He is fully vaccinated and will isolate and work at home per CDC protocols and medical advice. Earlier this month, the president and first lady stoked controversy when they were caught walking without a mask through Uh, Fiola Mar, a ritzy Italian seafood restaurant in Washington, D.C., where all individuals over age two are required to wear a mask indoors, regardless of vaccine status. White House Press Secretary Jan Psaki, she brushed off a question about the incident, saying people should pay attention to the president's policies and not only focus on moments in time. Well, it's not his policies. It's his commands what he demands of others and does not subject himself to. But that's the kind of nitpicky. Uh, pickiness that we are facing today in which everyone's actions are being scrutinized by others, particularly those who are handing down edicts. In other developments, the president boasts he used the word union more than any of the seven past presidents combined. I guess that's a virtue. Lindsey Graham uh, drug the president for or I, they use the word drags Joe Biden for being the most incompetent president as the Afghanistan crisis continues and the number of Americans stranded there has grown. The GOP doctors caucus are warning the Biden health care vaccine mandate could worsen patient care and labor shortages. And the president repeated a debunked Amtrak story for the fifth time during his presidency. Well, president Biden joked to school children saying his job is to avoid answering the media's questions. But not everyone was amused. A video shows a maskless California high school student in a non-compliance room. That's apparently where they're sent. Um, and um, 
Senator Haggerty has urged uh, Senator Sanders to oppose immigration provisions backed by big tech in the Democrat spending bill. Democrats are attempting to include a range of immigration provisions in the Build Back Better Act. Terry McAuliffe's past thoughts on critical race theory came back to haunt him right before next week's election. And an Alaskan bicyclist was mauled by a grizzly bear. He fended off the bear, the 400-pound animal, by kicking it. Well, Joe Manchin has opened up to negotiations on parts of the Biden spending plan. As you might recall, they set a deadline the end of this week, the end of this month. A union vote at Amazon's New York warehouse is a big step closer. And PayPal abandoned a Pinterest takeover after its shareholders balked at the idea. Well, the Supreme Court of the United States has agreed to hear the case for the Texas heartbeat law. SB 8 will remain in effect for the near future until the court issues its decision, which wouldn't um, typically be expected for weeks to months. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up for the next couple of segments, we'll talk with Eric Metaxas, the author of Is Atheism Dead? Well, Representative Ilhan Omar um, told constituents on Saturday at a town hall meeting that Minneapolis rise in gun violence and carjacking can be blamed on police who have chosen to not fulfill their oath of office and provide the public safety they owe to the citizens, end quote. She was responding to a resident who said she had been on the verge of moving because of the increase in crime and scores of officers who have quit or claimed post-traumatic stress since George Floyd's killing last year at the hands of police. When you have a system that refuses to work for the people it's supposed to serve, you have to go back to the drawing board, she said. At some point, you've got to walk away. Huh. I appreciated what Red State had to say about her comments. This sure feels like Omar set the house on fire and is now blaming the firefighters for not being able to contain the blaze. Police, whatever flaws they may suffer from in certain instances, are not the issue when they are faced with an unworkable situation. You cannot ask human beings to risk their lives for people who do not offer them basic support. And that includes the city council actively trying to destroy the department. Officers have families to go home to at the end of the day, just like anyone else. They're not robots, no matter how much Omar would like to treat them as such. Now she gets to cite the high crime rates she helped cause while blaming the police department she wants to defund. It's all incredibly convenient and furthers her goal of reimagining the police. Of course, that won't actually help the crime rates. In fact, it'll most uh, almost certainly make them worse. In fact, Omar and Minnesota AG Keith Ellison want to remove the police staffing requirements altogether. Apparently, social workers will take care of everything in the delusional utopia they envision. Well, the top teachers union boss is promoting a story calling the idea of parental rights as radical. The story claims what's actually radical here is the assertion of parental powers that have never previously existed. That have never previously existed. You can read more about that in the Washington Post. American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten called the story a great piece on parents' rights. Katie Pavlich points out good news. Weingarten says the... Uh, quiet part out loud parents act accordingly well comedian dave chappelle is being hit hard by the cancel culture 
from Chappelle. This film that I made was invited to uh, every film festival in the United States, and some of those invitations I accepted. When this controversy came out about The Closer, uh, they began disinviting me from these film festivals. And now, today, not a film company, not a movie studio, not a film festival, nobody will touch this film. Thank God for Ted, uh, Ted Sarandos and Netflix. He's the only one that didn't cancel me yet. Well, the New York Times is embroiled in a bargaining dispute with the uh, union and the debate spilled out onto Twitter from a pair of tweets. First, the new uh, new guide of New York. Today, hundreds of our New York Times guide members were denied access to their contact talks or contract talks. Management refused to bargain if they were present. This is unacceptable. It's time for the New York Times to stop stalling and start bargaining. Well, New York City workers and first responders gathered to protest the vaccine mandate. City workers took to the streets on Monday to protest Mayor Bill de Blasio's vaccine mandate for the entire municipal workforce. At least 15 people were arrested during the protest, a police source said. Days after the mayor announced that all government employees except for jail staff will need to receive a vaccine shot by Friday or be placed on unpaid leave. About 5,000 incensed demonstrators marched over the Brooklyn Bridge to Manhattan. Well, Georgia and Texas, well, they got to host the entire, or rather get to host the entire World Series. The two states the left hates the most right now. From Texas Governor Greg Abbott, this is excellent karma. Not that I believe in karma, just saying. NBA star Ennis Cantor attacked Nike for its ties to China and its hypocrisy. He praised Nike for their wokeness in America, then pointed out, but when it comes to China, Nike remains silent. You do not address police brutality in China. You do not speak against discrimination against the uh, the LGBTQ community. You do not say a word about the oppression of minorities in China. You are um, scared to speak up, end quote. Meanwhile, Jerry Bauer, he looked at the economic and demographic and moral crisis in the country. You can read more about that at townhall.com. Well, Democrats are considering a tax on unrealized capital gains, you know, imagined capital gains. And John Kerry holds a one million dollar stake in an equity fund linked to Uyghur labor abuse in China. The White House released its national gender strategy, and it is every bit as ridiculous as it sounds, a national gender strategy. The Treasury Department has appointed the first counselor for racial equity. FEMA rejected a Texas appeal for emergency aid for the border crisis. It's mind boggling. What border crisis? Apparently, they asked. Mexico is threatening a a uh, court-ordered restart of the Remain in Mexico policy. And Iran is behind a drone attack on a U.S. base in Syria. China launched a suspected anti-satellite weapon into space. It is very concerning. A self-proclaimed transgender teenage boy has been found guilty in the Loudoun County bathroom assault of a teenage girl. And the Loudoun County father, who called on the National School, uh, School Boards Association to apologize directly to parents, over their domestic terrorism uh, letter. The Oklahoma Supreme Court has blocked three pro-life laws scheduled to go into effect on November the 1st, and less than a quarter of eviction aid has been dispersed, according to the Treasury. Well, on this day in history, 1774, the First Continental Congress adjourns in Philadelphia. 1825, the Erie Canal opens up in upstate New York, connecting Lake Erie and the Hudson River. 1881, the gunfight at the O.K. Corral takes place in Tombstone, Arizona, as Wyatt Earp, his two brothers, and Doc Holliday confront um, 
Ike Canton's gang, three mem- gang rather, three members of uh, Clanton's gang are killed. Earp's brothers and Holiday are wounded. 1949, President Harry S. Truman signs a measure raising the minimum wage from 40 to 75 cents per hour. 1980, Israeli President Yitzhak Navan, he becomes the first Israeli head of state to visit Egypt. 1984, baby Fay, a newborn with a severe heart defect, is given the heart of a baboon in an experimental transplant um, in Loma Linda, California. Baby Fay would live 21 days with the animal heart. 2001, President George W. Bush signs a USA Patriot Act giving authorities unprecedented ability to search, seize, detain, or eavesdrop in their pursuit of possible terrorists. And 2018, on this day in history, the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Boston Red Sox take the field for what would become the longest World Series game in history, an 18-inning marathon lasting seven hours and 20 minutes. The Red Sox win 3-2 to two on a home run by Max Muncy. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm looking forward to the next couple of guests. In fact, we'll be talking with Eric Metaxas when he joins us here in our next couple of segments. His latest book is Atheism Dead. It's a response to an article that uh, took uh, the world by storm some years ago. In fact, way back in the 1960s. It's his answer. We'll talk more about that with him. Uh, We're also going to talk with Tim Mahoney. He's an award-winning director. He's the founder of Thinking Man Films and Media. They're releasing uh, the first in a series of films, The Seven Churches of Revelation, Times of Fire. There's a worldwide virtual cinema event. It begins today and runs through the end of November. We'll let you know how you can uh, uh, buy tickets to this event. Again, it's virtual, so you would purchase uh, access to it. Uh, you can either wait for the conversation uh, or you can go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. We have a link to information for that as well. But uh, really fascinating. I had an opportunity to uh, preview the film. And my only disappointment was that I have to wait for the next two installments because covering the seven churches requires three uh, separate films. The next one is due out next year. So, again, this virtual cinema event, it's a worldwide event, begins today and runs through November the 30th. You can go to seven, the number seven churches.com and view the trailer there if you want to learn more. Uh, or you can go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Eric Metaxas. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. As I mentioned earlier, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Eric Metaxas. He's written a new book. That's not surprising. He's always writing a new book. But in 1966, Time Magazine asked, Is God Dead? Some of you remember that. Others, maybe not so much. Half a century on, the question has changed. Well, the best-selling author, Eric Metaxas, takes Time's famous question and turns it around, Is Atheism Dead? And he offers an entertaining, wide-ranging, and decidedly provocative answer. In a voice that is witty, muscular, poetic, he echoes C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton in cheerfully and factually making his astonishing case that the belief in a creatorless universe is no longer logically tenable. Well, Eric Metaxas is a number one best-selling author whose books have been translated into 25 languages, the host of a nationally syndicated radio show and the acclaimed conversation series Socrates in the City. He is a prominent cultural commentator whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, and the Wall Street Journal. He lives with his family in New York City. Today, however, he is ours, at least for a short period of time, by phone. 
Eric Metaxas, thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, it's an honor to join you. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I have to tell you, I am I am more excited about this book than I've been about any book. And I'm not, you know, I'm not just saying that because it's my latest book. There's stuff in it. It's it's almost unbelievable. And that's kind of the theme of the book, right? That 1966 Time magazine asks, is God dead? And we've kind of bought into this cultural narrative, this secular narrative that God is, you know, being replaced by science or whatever. And ironically, exactly the opposite has happened except nobody knows about it. Because we live in a secular culture, mm-hmm. this kind of stuff is not covered. So science has, over the last 50 years, been leading on an insane level to God through what's called the fine-tuned universe and things that we couldn't have known 50 years ago, 40 years ago. So the, so the irony is that the more we learn from science, the more scientists are astonished at what they find, and they say there is no way all of these things could have been calibrated so perfectly. They, we, we always thought that everything just happened and here we are. Science is now dramatically making the case that everything, the universe, this planet, life was designed. And it's so intricate and complex that you, you know it never could have just happened. And I thought somebody needs to write about that. So that's why my book is is atheism dead? Effectively, atheism is dead. If you want to be an agnostic, great. We can have a conversation. We can talk about, you know, our disagreements, whatever. But this idea that there is no God, that to me, mainly from the science, but from some other stuff that I go into in the book, I don't think it's intellectually tenable. And the new atheists were terrible apologists for for atheism. They basically uh, were very intellectually sloppy and so I go into all of that, and, and I think it's important for people of faith and people who aren't so sure what they believe to know, like, what we now know that you just haven't heard, because the news tends not to cover stuff like this, as mm-hmm. you already know. Yeah. So is atheism the default position if you are either unwilling to or not particularly interested in looking very deeply? Is atheism kind of the default position so I don't have to be bothered with questions like why am I here and how things came to be? Well, yes. And that that's why that's one of the ways, you know, that it's just silly. In other words, agnosticism is an honest reckoning. If somebody says, listen, uh, I have big questions about your faith. I mean, I'm a Christian, right? So somebody says to me, I don't get this, I don't get that, that sounds crazy. How can you believe that? You can have an honest conversation with somebody. But there are some people that they're uncomfortable by even the idea that it might be real. So they say, I'm an atheist. Everything you say is stupid. Science is the only way we could know anything. Uh, Logic is the enemy of religion. Uh, rationality is the enemy of faith. Science is the enemy of faith. They don't work together. That is complete nonsense. And it's time that you say to somebody, listen, we can disagree, but here's something we cannot disagree on because it's a fact. Christian faith gave us mm-hmm. modern science. That's a fact. You, you, you can find many, many non-Christians who have written about this, that it was Christian faith that led to what we call the scientific revolution and, and science. You also have to reckon with the fact that you, you have every great scientist who ever lived up until like the 20th century, they were profound Christians. Galileo, Kepler, 
Maxwell, I mean, on and on and on. They were men of profound faith, and they not only saw no problem between science and Christian faith, but they actually said, I am glorifying God by examining his creation, and the more I discover, the more in awe I am of the God who made this. So that's another one of these kind of, you know, a lie, this this myth that science is at odds with faith and faith. It, it, it's, it, you know, it's not true. And then, as I say now, ironically, it's science itself that is pointing to God. I mean, that's, that's a headline. That's a crazy thing that nobody saw coming. So that's why the book is titled Is Atheism Dead? Hmm. We'll talk a, a little bit about the abundance of new evidence that points back to the idea of a created universe. What are some of the big pieces of evidence that uh, God had his hand on creation? I, I think we need to be refreshed and encouraged by, uh, by some of these new developments. Well, that's the thing, is that even the stuff that's not new, no one's heard about it usually, so it, it's new to them. You know, like, for mm-hmm. example, the idea that the Earth, if the Earth were the tiniest bit bigger or the tiniest bit sm- smaller, we couldn't have life on Earth. Now, most people think that's ridiculous. I've watched Star Trek. I've watched movies. Like, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? Science tells us that the Earth's magnetosphere, most of us have never even heard of that. I hadn't heard of it until I wrote the book. That the magnetosphere of the Earth, if it weren't what it is, we would be like Mars, where the atmosphere has basically gone off into outer space. If the Earth were a little bit bigger than it is, uh, our gravity would pull down, you know, poisonous gases and things, and we wouldn't be able to have life here for that reason. That's one of the simplest things, and we've known that for some time, but nobody knows that. And that's one of dozens and scores and hundreds of things that no matter where you look, you see evidence of design. And to me, as I say, the big headline is that nobody knows any of this stuff. You talk to intelligent people of faith, and they go, no, I never never heard that. I'll tell you one thing. Um, Christopher Hitchens, the arch-atheist, in a a rare moment of candor, because he could be really vicious and unyielding, somebody put a camera in his face and said, hey, what's the most impressive argument from the God side of things? And he said, oh, without any question, the fine-tuned argument. Uh, that's the one that everybody on, on our side says is, is the one that needs some working out. It's difficult. And, you know, the, and, and I thought to myself, you know, he admits it. But when I put stuff out about the fine-tuned universe, atheists just say, this is stupid. It's been disproven and stuff. It's like, well, n- not according to the smartest guy among you, Christopher Hitchens. So it really it makes people uncomfortable uh, there are things that are so crazy, like I discovered that the planet Jupiter, it's the largest planet in the solar system. It's gigantic, right? But if you look in the night sky and you happen to know where it is, it is like a pinprick. It, you know, even if you find it, it's a little nothing. It's 400 million miles away, four times as far away as the sun. It's so far away. But we now know that that planet, which looks so tiny from here, it's so huge that its gravity pulls asteroids and comets and meteors toward itself so that they don't hit Earth. In other words, if it, if it happened not to be there, and we kind of think, like, well, who cares about, you know, Saturn and Jupiter? Well, who cares? Well, it, we now know from science, if they weren't there, there's no way life could exist on Earth because the number of meteors and asteroids and comets that would hit Earth would it would it would be utterly impossible for life ever 
to exist. And now we know that from science, that's not some Christian thing, but it goes on and on. The size of the moon, the chemical composition of water, wherever science looks, it finds this kind of thing. And it's mounted up to a level that I just think is just astonishing. And that's only really one of the three arguments. The first part of the book is science, and mm-hmm. those are there are three arguments. And then I go into archaeology. And the third part of the book, I talk about atheism itself and why that doesn't make make sense. So there's there's a lot there, but I think a lot of it, and this is what gets me excited, it's going to be new to a lot of people. They're going to they're going to say, "Hey, I lived in a world where I didn't even know it was possible for science to to be reconciled with faith, and now you're telling me science is pointing to faith like that that's going to take time to process, you know. Uh, but we need to begin processing this because I think it's a paradigm shift. I think we're at a time now where this information has has come out, it's going to continue to come out, and honest people have to deal with it. If you want to be an agnostic, that's great, but I don't think you can honestly say, I'm an atheist. You can say, I was an atheist, now I'm an agnostic. Well, let me ask you to whom this book is written. You're a bright guy, you've written lots of books. Is this for the rank-and-file reader? Is this more of an academic work? To whom would you recommend it? Oh, I never write academic works. I always want to write to to anybody who likes to read books, because that's to me, the whole reason for this book is that people have not written popular level books on this subject. This is information that everybody needs to know. Anybody who reads books should know this stuff. And it has been relegated to, you know, more scientific type books or, or more apologetics type books that are, that are for people that are really into this stuff. I always write for, for, you know, I would call it the average reader, somebody who wants uh, a fun read. I mean, I, I, you know, I tell stories, a lot of the, for example, the archeology span books about biblical archeology, span they just tell you what's significant and why they don't give you the context. They don't tell you the story, the stories of how some of these things were discovered that prove that the Bible is history. The stories themselves are hilarious, crazy stories, and it, it makes it come to life. And so I think that's God's gift to me is that I know how to communicate mm-hmm. in that way, because I do think this information has to get past the experts. It has to get into the hands of everybody. And, you know, in the secular world, secular information is dispensed nonstop. But this is information that for one reason or another, it just has not it hasn't been known, and it's it's risen to such a crazy level. I said, I have got to put this in a book. People need to recalibrate and understand that we're we're in a different world than we were in 1966 when when the magazine said, "Is God dead?" We're in a world where the only real question is, "Is atheism dead?" And people need to know it. Absolutely. Once again, the book is titled, Is Atheism Dead? We're talking with Eric Metaxas. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments, but we need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Eric Metaxas is the author of a new book, Is Atheism Dead? It's divided into three parts. Does science point to God? The second uh, section is The Stones Will Cry Out. And the third, What is Truth? In which he deals with um, 
the fallout of atheism and what it uh, it means, why it's important for us to understand the answer to the question, is atheism dead? I want to start there uh, with the question that you pose, uh, and that is, is atheism evil? Is it important that we uh, uncover the underpinnings of atheism as being unreliable? And what difference does it make? Well, that's a big question, <laughs> Georgine, but I tell you, before, before uh, I answer that, let me just finish the answer to the last question, because I, I, it dawned on me that I, I wrote that even though I wrote this book for, you know, like everyone, I always hope that Christians will get encouraged because they will learn this stuff and they will say, holy guacamole, my faith is ultra reasonable. Why did I ever even walk with the slightest doubt, you know? But then I hope that they will they will think of people in their lives, maybe not atheists, but agnostics or people that just aren't sure what they think mm-hmm. and give it to them and say, look, this is what the, this is what the facts say. This is what science says. This is what archaeology says. And most people have no idea about this stuff. They're blown away when they read it. And then so I didn't write it really for a Christian audience. I wrote it for people that, you know, they don't know what they think. But your question about whether atheism is evil, the reason I ask that is because when you look at the track record of atheism. There's there's two things that need to be said. The track record of atheism, every atheistic state, North Korea, China, the Soviet Union, the Soviet bloc countries, they were cruel to the point of sadistic and, and sick in the way that they dealt with believers. There seems to be almost like a satanic animus toward faith. It's not neutral. It's not like, well, we're secular, so we don't do religion. They seemed to to deeply despise people of faith and of course there's the practical reason is is that you know atheism is is a nice way to tell people you can't listen to a higher power you've got to listen to me the government you have no other place to go and so people who look to god are a threat to atheist regimes but it also needs to be said that when when you look at the story uh, of of atheism it is, it's dark. People tend not to look at how bleak it is. They talk like, hey, I don't believe in God. Everything's great. And it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Thoughtful people, like smart, thoughtful people who really deal with the fact that maybe there's a world without God, they're not happy about it. They are troubled. They see it as bleak. They see the, the fact of it. Now, some of them are willing to confront it, like, you know, John Paul Sartre and Albert Camus, uh, and others, uh, Woody Allen, the filmmaker, he always talks about, you know, there's, there's no God and, and how horrible that is. It, it, he, even he's not happy about it because they understand that it means that there's no meaning in the universe. It means that love is a fiction. Uh, it's a figment of our imaginations that, that transcendence anything. Beauty is nothing. Your life is worth nothing. If you're really rigorous and you look at what atheism is, it is horrifying. So I think we need to be honest that the bleakness of it is, is, is almost unbearable to any human being. So you have to, if you say you believe it, you're ultimately going to be living a lie because you cannot live as though those things are true. I mean, that leads to the Nazi death camps. That leads to things that are, that are nightmares. Most people, even the new atheists, when they argued about atheism, you, you know, in the book I say, why do you rage? as though any of this matters. If you believe there's no 
God, then it means you believe there's no meaning in the universe, although you're going to argue and say, I can create my own meaning, which is, you know, ridiculous. You can't, what, what, what is meaning if you can create your own meaning? But they say those things because they can't bear living what they say. What they say is nothing matters. Their lives don't matter. If that were true, they wouldn't even argue about it. They wouldn't try to convince you or me or people writing books. Even in their effort to communicate that atheism is true, they are proving that it's not true, which, which is ironic and in some ways uh, comical, you know, that, that their, their, their rage shows that whether they like it or not, they're created for meaning. They're created for truth. They care about these things. If it were true that there are no God in the universe, they would just say, I don't care about anything. I don't care what you think uh, any more than I care what the stone thinks or the, or, or the tree uh, or the cup of water. You're meaningless. I'm meaningless. But no human being can live that out, which itself proves that, that real atheism is it's non-existent. It's a, it's a silly concept. So if you want to be an agnostic, that's a different story. And I think a lot of people that think of themselves as atheists, either they just hate religion or they're actually agnostics. Yeah, hate, hating religion is probably at the core of a lot of what passes for atheism today. And I'm not sure people, uh, everyone understands what an agnostic is, that you don't know that there is a God. You're not declaring there is no God and I have proof or, you know, science contradicts that possibility. They're suggesting, I don't know. And that seems to be a more honest approach to dealing with uncertainty. That's right. That's right. I, I, I think that if you say, I don't know, or if you say, I have all these kinds of questions, we can have a conversation. Yeah. But when you say, I know there's no God, there's no God, that's like saying, listen, uh, circles are square. Let's have a conversation. I I can't really have a conversation with you if you believe that, if you believe one plus one equals three or one plus one equals whatever I want it to equal. You have to start somewhere. And because of what we now know from science specifically, I don't think you can start from a position that there's there's no God. The evidence is so dramatic for design that even people that are not Christians or believing in the Bible, they, they've recognized it. They have understood that where we were 50 years ago, you could get away with that. You can't get away with that anymore. I mean, one of the my favorite parts of the book is where I talk about the emergence of life from non-life, right? Mm-hmm. We're not talking about evolution and that argument. We're just talking about Every scientist says four billion years ago, single-celled life emerged on Earth. And you say, okay, Mr. Scientist, if that's true and you're sure it's true, tell me how did it emerge? How does life emerge from non-life? This is the simplest life, so it didn't emerge from another life. This is the simplest life imaginable. How did it emerge from non-life? And in 1950, some experiment created some amino acids out of some, you know, Whatever they said, that's the beginning. We, you know, we're on our way to figuring it out. Seven decades later, and this is a couple of chapters in the book I write about this. Seven decades later, they haven't moved the ball forward an inch. They, science has led us to see more and more clearly that there is no way that you can go from non-life to life. And so they're fudging it. They, they're not declaring this. But I, I found a scientist. He's an amazing believer, genius. Uh, he he makes this very, very clear that they are totally clueless, but nobody really has the guts 
to talk about it because it's hugely embarrassing for the world of science that after they've been saying that they're on their way to figuring this out for 70 years, they are farther away than they were in 1952 when they made the declaration. Hmm. Uh, we're just about out of time, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about the fact that God crafted us uh, in the very likeness and image of himself and the implications of understanding the the creator and creation and that significant fact. Well, that is uh, a, a beautiful way to put it. Uh, it. It is true, and it's amazing that God makes us in his image. And part of a, you know, on one level, we don't know what that means because, of course, mm-hmm. uh, God created the entire universe out of nothing. It's, it's so far beyond us. But he gave us the ability to know him, to have a mind that can comprehend who he is and what he has done. And then he gives us the ability to create a civilization where we create science, where we can study him and see with more and more awe who he is and what he has done. When you examine creation via science, you get more respect and more awe and more fear of God. You say, who is this? And then you find out that God wants a relationship with me. That is mind-blowing. That is like the best news in the universe And, you know, this is where science is pointing us. So to me, this is all very good news. I think it's a paradigm shift in the culture. People uh, are no longer going to say, is God dead? They're going to say, is atheism dead? And most of them are going to know it it is. And the only question is, you know, what can we talk about? Let's talk about it. But uh, I, I have to say that just science alone gives you an appreciation for God that is really overwhelming. And that's one of the reasons also that I said, I've got to put this in the book. People need to understand that there are things in this world that that we've never thought about, like water. I have a whole chapter on water. I I couldn't believe that I could get fascinated by how God designed water. I thought it's the most boring thing in the world. It is so (laughs) fascinating that it is just freaky stuff when you realize what water is, what it does, why it has a particular viscosity, why it has a, but you just, who would ever think about this stuff? Nobody. And yet scientists have thought about it. And a guy, Michael Denton wrote a great book about it. And I, I, you know, I put it in a chapter. Water is one of the greatest proofs of God there is, but whoever talks about that, I said, well, it's about time we appreciated it. Well, absolutely. I remember uh, being brought to tears uh, hearing a science presentation on the structure of the eye and how that demonstrated that could not have just sprung into being. Uh, Science can be fascinating. And I have to say, Eric Metaxas writes to a general audience. It's uh, it's entertaining and readable and can help all of us draw a bit closer to the truth. The book is titled Is Atheism Dead? Eric Metaxas, it is always a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Georgine. Thank you. Uh, By the way, the book is uh, published by Salem Books and uh, currently available. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, many Christians believe that we're living in the last days. The recent turbulent years of uncertainty and worldwide unrest have provoked the deepest questions of our lives. Well, in the book of Revelation, the hostile times preceding the return of Christ are vividly described. And we wonder, could it be soon? 
Well, the seven churches of Revelation times of fire is the first of three feature films that examines the letters from the resurrected Christ given to the last living apostle John, the beloved for the seven churches of Asia Minor. Thinking Man Films, Revelation Media, and Millennium Production are bringing the seven churches of Revelation Times of Fire to small screens as a virtual cinema event beginning today. And we wanted to make sure you knew all about it, so I've invited Timothy Mahoney to join us to talk about it. He is the award-winning director of four feature films, Patterns of Evidence, The Red Sea Miracle 1 and 2, Patterns of Evidence, The Moses Controversy, and Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus. He is the founder of Thinking Man Films and Media, a Minneapolis, Minnesota-based international documentary and publishing company. He spent almost 20 years exploring some of the biggest questions of the Bible and what they mean for our world today. His insatiable curiosity led him on a journey across the world, interviewing some of the world's leading biblical scholars, archaeologists, and historians to seek answers. And what he uncovered is an amazing pattern of evidence that matches the events recorded in the scriptures. And I'm just delighted to welcome uh, Timothy Mahoney to join us here today. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on your program. You know, I had an opportunity to actually view the film. I was given a preview, and I was so fascinated by it. My only disappointment was that I have to wait for the the other two installments. First of all, congratulations. This is a, a, a tremendous work. It is. And I, I haven't seen a film like this in this uh, technique or, or category before. I think it's so powerful how it takes us to the actual locations where the early church uh, lived and where these letters were sent from, from uh, John. Well, uh, for the sake of listeners who haven't had the opportunity to maybe read or see uh, the the film, could you tell us about the Seven Churches of Revelation films and uh, what sets this film and film series uh, like it apart from some of the other things we might have seen on the subject? Right. Well, oftentimes uh, the book of Revelation is really focused on the area of who is the Antichrist or uh, connecting it, uh, the book of Revelation, to to modern events. This film, I think there, there are connections, but this film really focuses on the actual location where John received the letter, which is the island of Patmos, and then it goes on a, on a hunt, as it were, to the, where these churches, where these letters were sent. And as we mentioned, this is a three-part film series, and so the first part of the, uh, this first film is focused on three of the churches, the church at Ephesus, the church at Smyrna, and the church at uh, Pergamum. And so we're going to go to those locations in this film and show you uh, the cities, and the, and we're going to hear the story that the early Christians were faced with, I mean, as far as the challenges they were faced with as being Christians uh, at a time when the Roman Empire controlled everything. Now, the first film is uh, Times of Fire. Can you share what the documentary is covering? Because as you mentioned, this is a series, and this first one covers a part of the seven churches. Right. Uh, Times of Fire, we, we picked that name because there's this uh, fire of persecution that the early church starts to face because they were saying that there was only one true God, and and they were talking about Jesus Christ. And the rest of the of that you know culture was basically focused on uh, idolatry of of many different gods as well as what they would call Caesar worship, and so we're going to be looking at this tension that the early church is facing 
to live out their lives being faithful to who they believe um, to to Jesus Christ and and to their Christian faith, and this tension is going to rub right up against the culture. And again, it's it's fascinating that the the film is on site where these events. Uh, were first articulated, and uh, the area where the church was located, and the access that you have had with scholars and archaeologists that help us understand the terrain, the the history, and, and so on, really is fascinating. What did you personally learn about these cities with the project? What, what I think that was uh, you know interesting for me is that the idea that history is repeating itself, and uh, you know here we have. Uh, a culture in uh, that the early church, you know, was was uh, was coming up against, and this culture was both economic and it was religious and it was political, and it, and in that time it all interwove itself together. So if you didn't worship the way of the, let's say the Ephesians were worshiping, uh, you were an outsider. You were considered somebody who might be causing negative uh, impact to happen on the city. That the gods would be angry with the city or there'd be some type of displeasure that would happen. And so what I'm seeing, you know, if I look at parallels, when, I, when you think about, well, are we living in the last days? And this film is covering that when we talk about the, uh, when we have the panel discussion towards the end. In fact, these films that I've been working on have been uh, events that you'll see the film and then we'll follow up with a panel discussion. In this particular film, we have a panel discussion that was filmed at the Museum of the Bible. And we're going to look at the film. Uh, you'll see this film in the cinema in the virtual release, but you're also going to basically be able to watch and, and sort of digest what this film, the insights of this film, and the insights that the early Christians uh, you know, were facing. And for me, I just came away with how courageous they were in their faith. And if I'm going to be a yes. true follower of Christ, I need to be courageous as well. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned a worldwide virtual cinema event, and I want to talk about that in just a moment. But I also want to just highlight that this is a an international partnership uh, that is very unusual. Can you explain that a little bit? Has anything like this happened before? Well, not to my knowledge uh, uh, in a long time, if it has, because what we have is a French company, working with uh, two companies here in America, two different film companies and marketing companies. And we're doing something that maybe a lot of other people, let's say in mainstream might've done, but we're, we're combining our forces together to reach the world. So Christophe Hanover is the producer and he's in the movie. He's a Frenchman who, who basically was inspired by the way, by one of my films that he saw several years ago. He saw our film patterns of evidence, the Exodus, and he saw the approach that I had taken as a filmmaker uh, where I was looking for patterns of evidence. And he thought, hey, why don't I try to do that here? And he knew some scholars who were experts in the book of Revelation, and they discussed it. And that's when they decided to create this film project by going into Turkey. So they filmed in Turkey and they filmed in Greece and they filmed in France. And so it's uh, usually you don't see these kinds of films coming out of France because there's just not a lot of films that have biblical content mm-hmm. coming out of France. And that's when he then contacted me and said, Tim, will you help me get this film around the world? And then I ended up contacting Steve Cleary, who is working with, uh, he produced the animated series, I Bi- uh, the animated series, I Bible, as well as Pilgrim's Progress, which was just out recently. 
And he loved the idea. And so we all got together and started to promote and communicate this film to all of our networks uh, that we have. And that's what we're doing right now. And so we've just been in 750 theaters last week, and we had great attendance, uh, despite the, the concerns that some people have. And now we're on to the worldwide virtual cinematic release. Well, let's talk about that um, virtual cinematic uh, event uh, that begins today and runs through November the 30th. For people who want to see this documentary, and I would highly recommend it, having seen it myself, how do they go about it? Well, we have a website, uh, www, and then the number seven, then the word churches.com. So www, the number seven, churches.com. If you go to that website, you'll see where you can buy purchase tickets. And one of the things that we're suggesting is that, uh, that this film is about the church. And, you know, a church is wherever there are two or three, you know, are gathered together. Uh, so we're suggesting that this is a film that you can watch in your home, but invite your friends mm-hmm. over, invite your family over, uh, because this is an important message. I think if anything that I've taken away from this is that how important it is that we have the body of Christ. We have other believers that we're in fellowship with, uh, especially now, as things are becoming more and more uncertain in the future. Uh, we can't live our faith just uh, by ourselves anymore. We're going to need to be within a community of other believers. And that's why we're encouraging people to you know, rent this uh, cinema event, uh, the Seven Churches of Revelation, Times of Fire, and then invite people over and uh, enjoy, have a whole evening. It'll be quite an evening. And then afterwards, you can talk about it. Yes. Yeah, I would recommend that as well. I have a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. So if you want to go there, there's a link to uh, the website where you can uh, purchase your tickets and, and so on. What's next for you in Thinking Man Films? We are working on the fifth and sixth films of our series, uh, Patterns of Evidence, Journey to Mount Sinai. And uh, we, we're going to make that, uh, we're, we're following our way across the sea locations. The last film we made was The Red Sea Miracle, parts one and two. And now we're headed to the mountain and we're following the journey. But as usual in some of these films, there's archaeological evidence that has turned up that I just knew that was going to be so powerful and so intriguing and so important that we needed to talk about it. There's um, inscriptions that, that are telling us information that relates directly to the Bible uh, that, <laughs> that uh, certain scholars are deciphering, and it's really going to be powerful. Oh, fascinating. Well, once again, I would encourage you to start with the Seven Churches of Revelation, Times of Fire. The uh, virtual cinema event begins today and runs through the 30th of November, and you can uh, find out more at the number 7 churchescom www number seven churches.com. I also have a link on the Georgine Rice show page, but check it out. It really is very well done. And I'm looking forward to the other two in that series as well. Thank you so much for the work that you do as a thinking man to inform the body of Christ, to encourage us and to draw us uh, deeper into the scriptures. Well, thank you, Georgine. I really appreciate your help getting the word out. Anytime. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, we'll continue to take a look at some of the day's news. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to continue to look at some of the day's news, beginning with the Food and Drug Administration panel that voted today to recommend use of the Pfizer BioNTech coronavirus vaccine for children ages 5 to 11. It's not really surprising. The politicians made the announcement before the decision was made, and it's not likely that the FDA would have decided otherwise. The advisory panel, known as the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, gave its approval to administer the Pfizer vaccine to children in two doses spaced three weeks apart. Children receive one-third of the dose given to people over the age of 12. Well, members of the committee debated whether children under the age of 12 require a coronavirus vaccine or whether to recommend it only for those at higher risk of complications from COVID-19. Ultimately, 17 committee members voted in favor of broad abstained. Committee members discussed data on efficacy of the vaccine and the potential risk for side effects. Pfizer and Bio, um, BioNTech reported that their vaccine is 90.7% effective at preventing symptomatic COVID-19 in children ages 5 to 11, and no participant in the company's study of children developed myocarditis, a heart inflammation condition seen in rare instances in young men who received the vaccine. Well, the FDA as an agency still needs to authorize the vaccine for the 5 to 11 age group. However, the agency generally follows the advisory committee's recommendations. Authorization will likely be given in the next several weeks and vaccines for young children could be available sometime in November. Now, the question is not whether or not some parents will choose to administer the vaccine to their children, but whether or not it will be mandatory at some point. Well, the Pentagon stated today that nearly 450 American citizens are still in Afghanistan, 450 following the August withdrawal more than Biden, uh, the Biden administration had previously claimed. Well, the latest tally came from Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Colin um, Call, after Senator Jim Inhofe pointed to what he believed were contradictory or at least confusing numbers that the administration has presented since the August 31st withdrawal. One of the many confusing things about this whole thing is that we really don't know how many Americans are left in Afghanistan, Inhofe said uh, at the time. The administration's numbers of U.S. citizens left in Afghanistan keeps changing. We all understand that. It's very confusing, end quote. Well, Inhofe noted that the administration always said 100 to 200 U.S. citizens left in Afghanistan, but now says it, it has already withdrawn 234 and is in contact with 363 others, 176 of whom want to leave, citing numbers the State Department provided last week. Now, if you can figure this out, um, you're doing a lot better than I have done, Inhofe went on to admit. Well, Call gave a thorough response detailing the numbers he had of how many Americans were in Afghanistan, are in Afghanistan, and had gotten out, eventually leading to the number of those who remain. And that number at this point is apparently... 450 Americans in Afghanistan. U.S. intelligence shows that ISIS-K, that's the Islamic State Group's Afghanistan affiliate, could potentially have the ability to strike American targets in as little as six months, while al-Qaeda can also increase its capabilities, a top Pentagon official has said. Well, Colin uh, Call, the same gentleman I quoted a moment ago, who's the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, told the Senate Armed Services Committee on Tuesday that neither terror group poses an imminent threat, but that they still must be taken seriously, as that could change in a fairly short amount of time. I think the intelligence, he went on to say, 
The intelligence community currently assesses that both ISIS-K and al-Qaeda have the intent to conduct external operations, including against the United States, but neither currently has the capability to do so. We could see ISIS-K generate that capability in somewhere between 6 to 12 months. I think the current assessment by the intelligence community is that al-Qaeda would take a year or two to reconstitute that capability. He warned the U.S. must remain vigilant against that possibility. And I appreciated the use of the word possibility and not probability. Let's hope that's uh, the right word to apply in this case. Well, in other news, the Oklahoma Supreme Court, they voted to temporarily block three laws that placed restrictions on abortion and that were set to take effect in the state on the 1st of November. The Oklahoma Supreme Court recognized that these laws would cause irreparable harm to Oklahomans. That's what the Center for Reproductive Rights president and CEO Nancy Northrup said. All of these laws have the same goal to make it harder to get an abortion in Oklahoma. Well, duh. We will continue to fight in court to ensure these laws are struck down for good. Politicians should not be meddling in the private health decisions of Oklahomans, end quote. Well, the court blocked two laws that would have placed restrictions on abortions and abortion inducing medication. While a third law would have required abortion performing doctors to be board certified in obstetrics and gynecology. The court voted five to three to grant a temporary injunction preventing the law from taking effect on the first of November. The three judges that dissented in the rulings were appointees of the uh, Rep- Republican Governor Kevin Stitt. Uh, while one judge did not vote, about half of all abortion providers in the state would have been forced to stop providing abortions under the restrictions requiring providers to be board certified in obstetrics and gynecology, which uh, critics say would have sharply reduced access to abortion across the state. The ruling comes after a district court judge temporarily blocked two other laws restricting abortion in the state from taking effect, one of which was similar to a Texas abortion law that bans the procedure after six weeks of pregnancy and is based on a detectable heartbeat. Well, in the context of abortion and public policy, I thought it rather interesting the hue and cry that has gone up when it was learned that Dr. Fauci oversaw or at least helped to underwrite experimentation on dogs. Now, I'm not in favor of torturing animals. That's not my point. Uh, My point is the level of outrage that these dogs might in some way suffer Compared to how we deal with the subject of abortion as a culture, I found rather stark. Uh, Douglas Andrews writes of this puppy abuse, your tax dollars at work. He says these days it's rare to find bipartisan outrage on any one issue. But Beagle torture funded by our own National Institutes of Health, the taxpayer expense on this issue, a bipartisan group of congressional representatives all agree. Anthony Fauci and his subordinates have some serious explaining to do. Well, a bipartisan group of House legislatures, legislators rather, is demanding that Fauci respond to allegations that the National Institutes of Health provided a grant to a lab in Tunisia that was used to torture and kill dozens of beagle puppies in barbaric scientific experimentations. Well, in a letter to the uh, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, South Carolina Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace and 23 colleagues addressed their grave concerns about reports of costly, cruel, and unnecessary taxpayer-funded experiments on dogs. Yesterday, she tweeted, I sent a letter to Dr. Fauci regarding cruel taxpayer-funded experiments on puppies, uh, debarking before um, drugging and killing them. Thankful uh, to my 23 Democrat and Republican colleagues who signed on, this is disgusting. What say you, NIH? 
Well, it is disgusting, but I can think of other things that are equally disgusting. In, pa- in fact, more disgusting than that. The selective outrage is um, rather telling. And yes, these are your tax dollars at work. The article goes on. According to documents obtained via a Freedom of Information Act request by taxpayer watchdog group White Coat Waste Project, Fauci's National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases spent $1.68 million in taxpayer funds on drug tests involving 44 beagle puppies, the letter reads. According to the watchdog group, the otherwise healthy beagle puppies were treated with an experimental medication before being introduced to um, biting flies that were carrying a a parasite rather known to be contagious to humans. After having endured months of abuse, including the slitting of their vocal cords in order to keep them from barking out in pain, the animals were killed. According to a statement issued by the uh, NIAID, in response to the group's charges, all animals used in NIH-funded research are protected by laws, regulations, and policies to ensure the smallest possible number of subjects and the greatest commitment to their welfare, end quote. What a strange and grotesque commitment to the welfare of those poor beagle pups. What's interesting is that uh, Ben uh, Domenech uh, first reported on this uh, abject cruelty in early August, but the story didn't gain traction. Now, though, Fauci finds himself in hot water yet again after having been caught lying to Congress about whether taxpayer uh, dollars were spent on coronavirus gain-of-function research in a Chinese virology lab. And again, this this is uh, big news, um, dogs being tortured. And again, I'm not suggesting that dogs should be tortured for the sake of research. I just find it fascinating that people are outraged at the torture that dogs are facing, and less so when it comes to children in utero and what many of them later in the abortion procedure experience, not to mention those early on whose lives are simply ended. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we'll be back. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Um, I want to remind you that later this week, we're going to talk with Laura Harris-Smith. Her book is titled Give It to God and Go to Bed. Stress Less, Sleep Better, dream more that's coming up on thursday's program so hope you'll tune in well ruling on the case that uh, has seized national attention and reinvigorated debate over parental rights in public education a virginia juvenile court judge concluded on yesterday on monday that a transgender teenager sexually assaulted a female student in a loudon county high school in may this was apparently the second incident uh, that was not pr- handled properly the first time around. Well, Chief Judge Pamela Brooks found there was sufficient evidence to determine the individual guilty of sexual assault. Now, the decision comes after the Daily Wire spoke to the victim's father, who said the male student forcibly violated his ninth grade daughter in a school bathroom while wearing a skirt. When the father attempted to describe and protest the incident at a local school board meeting, he was arrested for disorderly conduct, allowing the sexual abuse to stay underground for months. After the assault, the perpetrator was transferred to another school where he allegedly assaulted a second female student in early October. Transfer is not a solution. Well, in the interim, the Loudoun County School Board passed a sweeping gender inclusivity policy, allowing students to use restrooms and locker rooms, as well as compete in sports according to their gender identity rather than their biological sex. Well, the alleged gender fluidity of the perpetrator was not raised during the hearing, according to The New York Times, although court documents confirmed the offender was wearing a skirt 
when the assault took place. In court, the 15-year-old girl testified that uh, she engaged in, okay, and I'm not sure who we're talking about now because you don't actually call someone what they are. I believe this is the boy uh, testified that he engaged in consensual sexual activity with the defendant two different times in a girl's bathroom at a different school, but on a subsequent occasion was violently coerced into um, something else. Well, again, who's the boy? Who's the girl? To whom are they referring? It can be very confusing. Somehow biology makes it all much simpler. Many parents in the district were enraged to discover that the teenager remained enrolled in the school system while the case was pending and the local law enforcement conducted an investigation. But uh, the father who was hauled off to jail Following that school board meeting when he was rather upset about his daughters having been uh, violated, was uh, hauled off to jail. And you may have seen the, the footage on that. Well, students in Loudoun County, Virginia, staged a walkout in protest of the recent sexual assault cases at the public school system and to show solidarity with the victims of such abuses. Students who choose to participate will not be penalized for their participation. However, we do ask that students who participate do so peacefully without signage and in accordance with the students' right and responsibilities we all reviewed and signed at the beginning of the year. That's a quote from Michelle Luttrell, the principal at Loudoun County High School. Well, uh, students at Stonebridge, Broad Run, Riverside and other schools plan to participate in the walkout today. They planned to uh, leave class for 10 minutes in protest and organizers asked students and teachers to wear white and make protest signs. Well, approximately 75 students briefly walked out of one school, Broad Run High School. The mass widespread walkouts across the country didn't come to fruition. The broad run walkout came hours ahead of what is expected to be a contentious Loudoun County school board meeting again. Well, as I mentioned, a judge found a boy guilty on Monday of sexually assaulting a girl in the girl's bathroom last spring at Stonebridge High School. The boy was uh, reportedly wearing a skirt during the incident. It's not clear how he identifies himself. Well, last night, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed the state's Save Women's Sports Bill into law and ensures that girls' school sports competitions are reserved for females, biological females. This makes Texas the ninth state to pass a girls' sport bill into law. Other states that have passed a Save Girls' Sports Bill include Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Idaho, Mississippi, Montana, Tennessee, West Virginia. Some states include protections for college athletes as well. Uh, It's a good day for girls in Texas. Uh, That's what uh, one competitor had to say about it. A female athlete should grow up with a level of uh, with a level playing field in life and in sports. When males are allowed to compete in female sports competitions, they can and do take championship titles and other elite opportunities that were meant for girls. But in Texas, many girls can know that they have a level playing field and a fair shot at the opportunities meant just for them. We are grateful for the work of our friends at Texas Values who made this important step possible. Well, the danger in people speaking their truth, that's relativity, is that the motives are typically to exploit victimhood for power. Well, this is absolutely the case with Nicole Hannah-Jones' 1619 Project. Now, she admitted as much in her acceptance address for the Freedom of Speech Award given by the Roosevelt Institute. Hannah Jones admitted what she's uh, doing is activist journalism and the 1619 Project is the narrative that allows for policy. 
She is a big advocate for critical race theory and reparations. The seed for writing the 1619 Project was planted by a radical teacher in high school uh, who taught a black students, uh, black studies class. And the fruits of the poisonous tree have catapulted her into positions of power, both in The New York Times and at Harvard University, where she is a professor. Her ideas have affected our nation in the culture wars. It gave... um, and even louder voice to the cult of anti-racism, as Cornell University Associate Professor John McWhorter dubbed it. The cult of anti-racism is a very specific subset of cultural uh, of cancel culture. Uh, Valparaiso University's philosophy professor Aaron Preston writes, as the philosopher Richard Rorty observed two decades ago, practitioners in these fields are resentful specialists in subversion who treat literature and philosophy and indeed language itself as tools to be used for political purposes. Hurling the um, condemning label racist at people in systems that don't deserve it in order to incite revolutionary outrage is exactly the kind of subversive linguistic manipulation prescribed in their playbook. Well, a prime example in uh, the leadership, Attorney General Merrick Garland recently asserted, today a white family is 30 percent more likely to own a home than a black family. This present day gap in home ownership rates is larger than it was in 1960. But a uh, Daryl B. Harrison reports uh, this is an example of how critical race theory leverages statistics to advance a subjective narrative that contains a built in and uh, unquestionable assumption. In this case, that the purported 30 percent gap is solely due to racism and that we're entering a new era of redlining. One of the most twisted forms of the reparations Hannah Jones and her um, ilk demand is the abolition of merit as a basis for achievement. It presumes that uh, men and women of color are incapable of competing on that um, scale. The most recent attack was perpetrated by MIT, which canceled University of Chicago professor uh, Doran Abbott in opposition to his views on meritocracy and affirmative action. In an article, he warns about the dangers of race subverting a merit-based ideology, saying 90 years ago, Germany had the best universities in the world. Then an ideological regime obsessed with race came to power and drove many of the best scholars out, gutting the facilities and faculties and leading to sustained decay that Germany uh, and German universities never fully recovered from. We should view this as a warning of the consequence of viewing group members and membership as more important than merit and correct our course before it's too late. Two lawsuits. One suit is asking the Oregon Supreme Court to get rid of the legislature's plan entirely for redistribution of congressional seats, while the other alleges Democrats pushed one Uh, of their own. Well, a former Republican state representative yesterday asked the Oregon Supreme Court to throw out all newly drawn state House and Senate districts and replace them with more competitive maps. The lawsuit from former Representative Patrick Sheehan, a Republican out of Portland, yes, are are, uh, Republicans in Portland, and Clackamas County Attorney Samantha Hazel joined a uh, challenge filed earlier Monday that asked the court to redraw two Eugene area districts. In that case, Two Lane County men argued that Democratic leaders deliberately and illegally shifted Democratic Representative Marty Wild into a Republican district to prevent him from challenging a sitting Democratic senator. Well, it goes on and we'll certainly continue to follow the story. Just one quick quote. Kevin Mannix, a Salem lawyer and 
Former Oregon Republican Party chair, who's representing Sheehan and Hazel, wrote that the legislature broke state laws governing redistricting by using existing district boundaries to start drawing new map lines based on updated census data and by refusing to consider nonpartisan maps submitted by the public. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Thanksgiving 2021 is just around the corner. It could be the most expensive meal in the history of the occasion, the holiday. Carolyn Hoffman is um, one example. She's stashing canned pumpkin in the kitchen of her Chicago apartment when she finds some of the um, for under a dollar. She spent about two dollars more for vanilla uh, that she's going to need to bake pumpkin bread and other desserts for the various um, Friendsgiving celebration she's been invited to. Another example, Matthew McClure paid 20% more this month than he did last year for the 25 pasture-raised turkeys he plans to roast uh, at a um, restaurant where he's the executive chef. Norman Brown, the director of sweet potato sales at uh, Wada Farm in Raleigh, North Carolina, is paying truckers nearly twice as much as usual to haul the crop to other parts of the country, namely our own. I've never seen anything like it, and I've been running sweet potatoes for 38 or 39 years, Mr. Brown says. I don't know what the answer is, but in the end, it's all going to get passed on to the consumer. Well, the point is, nearly every component of the traditional American Thanksgiving dinner, from the disposable aluminum turkey roasting pan to the coffee and the pie, is going to cost more this year, according to agricultural economists, farmers, and grocery executives. Major food companies like Nestle and Procter & Gamble have already warned consumers to brace for more price increases. Uh, last year, granted, the cost of a Thanksgiving dinner for um, tin was the lowest it had been since 2010. That's according to the American Farm Bureau, whose annual survey of large dinners will be released later next month, mid-November. But because of the pandemic, fewer people bought for, well, big gatherings and turkey prices were kept pretty low to entice shoppers. Well, this year, turkey prices are likely to hit record highs and the cost of many foods has jumped sharply as well. While there's no single culprit, the nation's food supply has been battered by the um, supply chain knots, uh, high transportation expenses, labor shortages, trade policies, bad weather. Inflation is to play as well. In September, the consumer price index for food was up 4.6% for a, from a year ago, and prices for meat, poultry, fish, and eggs soared 10.5% above last year. Well, weeks before the holiday feast, home cooks have started shopping, hoping to uh, get ahead of the shortages and price creep. I pictured a perfect storm of increased demand and lack of supply, says a food writer in North Carolina who's already laid out his Thanksgiving game plan and expects to have some components in the freezer by next week. Instead of that fresh turkey you'll get at the last minute, maybe a frozen turkey that you'll take the week to thaw out. For lots of cooks, the biggest expense will be, well, the turkey. By the end of the year, market analysts say prices per pound will likely surpass the record Department of Agriculture benchmark price for turkeys, a dollar thirty-six, um, set in 2015. Well, turkey is more expensive largely because the price of corn, which most commercial turkeys feed on, more than doubled in some parts of the country from July of last year to July of this year. Whole frozen birds between 8 and 16 pounds already cost 25 cents a pound more than they did a year ago. 
That's according to the weekly Department of Agriculture Turkey report that was released last Friday. Well, the price rises are hitting in a year when COVID-19 vaccines and loosened health guidelines point to more and bigger holiday celebrations than last year. Uh, there will be uh, fewer turkeys on the market, but demand is expected to be higher, particularly for smaller birds and for more carefully raised and processed turkeys. Well, Kroger executives, they're anticipating more than more of what marketers call the um, premiumization of Thanksgiving ingredients, with many cooks shopping for turkeys that are fresh, organic, free range or processed in ways that elevate them beyond the inexpensive frozen birds. However, given the shortages we're hearing about and the cost, people might just take what they can get. Well, customers aren't necessarily going out to uh, restaurants, so they're upping their game in terms of products, the company chief uh, says. Still, plenty of households will be looking for bargain turkeys and trying to stretch their food budget. I can buy that this is uh, this will be the most expensive Thanksgiving ever, but there's an income inequality story here that matters a lot. An agricultural economist at Michigan State University says the rich are going to be spending more on Thanksgiving than they have ever spent before, but not everyone is going to be able to do that. Um, Packaged dinner rolls will be the pricier, uh, one of the pricier items, because the cost of almost all the ingredients that commercial bakers use has gone up. Canned cranberry sauce will cost more because domestic steel plants have yet to catch up after pandemic shutdowns and China is limiting steel production to reduce carbon emissions. You know, the cans made out of steel. As a result, steel prices have remained more than 200 percent higher than they were before the pandemic. Well, the healthier price tag on that turkey friendly California um, Pinot Noir, they say, reflects a 25 percent surge in energy cost, expensive delays related to labor shortages. And well, you get all the rest. All of these dynamics are not theoretical. We can lose sight of how these broader issues hit home. Extreme weather has made Thanksgiving ingredients cost more. Uh, A late spring drought in the Midwest damaged the sugar beet crop, which had already been hurt by freezing weather in 2019. Hurricane Ida shut cane sugar refineries in the south. Grape, nut, and citrus crops in California have suffered under this year's drought. Uh, Brazil, that supplies the world with uh, more coffee than any other country, has endured severe drought. And then a surprise July frost resulting in less coffee and higher prices. Well, even the basic materials like wooden pallets, cardboard containers that farmers need to get their crops from the field to the distributor are either hard to find or much more expensive. So adjustments will need to be made And gratitude, perhaps, will be based on something other than what's on your dinner plate. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing and engineering today's program. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.